Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mindspace. I'm Jeff Boucher and I'm here with Maya St. Clair and uh, we're very excited to be back. Been away for a little while. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. And today we have a great guest. Uh, Maya, who do we have? Uh, our guest today is Nick Patera. He's wrapping up his crowdfunding campaign for his uh, indie comic book, Axe Wielder John, uh, which is crowdfunded on the platform we love the most, Zoop. Yeah. Um, so I think there's about a week left in the campaign, but basically uh, you and him have a conversation about comics, music, Mobius, art, life, and uh, Axe Wielder John. <laughs> Yeah, which is absolutely. this fantastic character uh, who goes on a very kind of uh, action-packed uh, adventure. Nick compares it to Masters of the Universe. People have compared it to Mobius. It's got a very old school heavy metal aesthetic. Um, so yeah. we totally invite you all to check it out on Zoop and uh, crowdfund it. Um, I think you can, there's various tiers of rewards and the hardcover starts at $40 and it really, it, it looks incredible. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it does. It looks really lovely. And, and uh, it's, uh, I guess, um, lovely is probably not the, the ideal word for an axe wielder, but it's a, uh, it's a beautiful uh, project. And, and uh, Nick is uh, just a fascinating thinker. So uh, uh, it's a great, great conversation ahead. And uh, we should just jump right into it. You know, you're doing a uh, project now. It's your first time writing and drawing a comic book, right? Yeah, writing and drawing my first comic book. It's called uh, Axe Holder John, and we launched on Zoop uh, almost a month ago. We got about a week left, and I'm not sure when this drops, but um, we, we might extend it a week. But yeah, it's uh, called Axe Holder John. I'm writing and drawing, and it's kind of my passion project, and it was something I wanted to bring uh, directly to fans. And so, yeah, just we just kicked it off, and it's going really incredible. Got $150,000 in sales already with a still a week to go. So it's going really good. Wow, that's fantastic. That's really great. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the story and about, uh, you know, just the, uh, the project so far. Well, the tagline for Axewater John is that there is this um, faceless barbarian who's cursed to fall in love with the heads of his many victims. And uh, he's kind of this um, over-the-top, very machismo character. And he's in this world of monsters and mayhem. And uh, he makes this precious discovery in the book and he finds out what a man is willing to lose and, uh, uh, in order to protect what he loves most. That's kind of the tagline. And so uh, for me, when I came up with the story for Axe Wilder, uh, we have, I have two, two daughters now, but my first daughter was born three years ago. She, uh, we ended up having to stay in the NICU with her. She got really sick and had a stomach blockage and had to have a bunch of surgeries. and. Uh, and then we ended up living in the Ronald McDonald house and, you know, staying with her in the NICU for a few months. And during that time, when she was in critical condition, you would have, you know, religious people come up and say, give it over to God, or people say to trust the doctors and you're kind of in a helpless position. And so when I was there, I started doodling with all this free time I had while my daughter was healing and she's perfectly fine now. But when at the time, you know, there's all this turmoil and this character started coming to me that was. Um, he kind of took no crap off of anyone, you know, he was going to fix the world his way. And I thought it'd be really cool if his way was chopping things in half, his way, the, his way of fixing things was breaking them in a very pig headed way. And, uh, and then from that kind of character design that I came up with in concept, I said, well, what if you give him a, a problem that he can no longer fix by cutting it in two? And then kind of the story started spilling out and it really was mimicking things I was going through as a father. Uh, but on the comic book page and it, the story meant so much to me when I started writing it 
uh, when I started drawing it. And he, and he kind of came to me as a hero, you know, when I needed him in my time of need, kind of manifested himself into my world and my reality. So I, I wasn't, what I did was I, I told myself I wasn't going to ask permission to make the book. I knew from the time I started it, I was going to make it no matter what. And I was probably going to crowdfund it. And so I'd never pitched Axwiller to anybody. I wrote and drew it myself and funded it myself for the last year and a half. Uh, took no paycheck from a publisher so I could own the IP forever. And I'm going to make this book. You know, it's, 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 a, big, it's a big undertaking. You know, it's many volumes. And uh, I know the ending. I know the beginning. And I've been working hard uh, writing and drawing it for the last year and a half. And we just recently launched. And we're about 85, 90% complete, which is rare for a, a large graphic novel on a crowdfunding platform but I wanted to get it as complete as possible before we uh, share it with fans. Wow, that's that's amazing. So when you say many volumes, like how, how when you see that finish line in your mind, how far away is that? Uh, there's at least there's at least five, but there's a in, in the first really big story. I think each volume self-contained in a way, but the first big story happens to get the whole meal of the stories in three volumes. So for the next three years, I'm going to draw a volume a year, but then there's a a gap in the story and then the characters are going to age and such so if i need to go work at the big two again or take us take a freelance gig i can but i don't think i will have to with the foundation i'm building with soup and the platform and the credible launch i've kind of got enough money to fund the next book and work on the, the next one as well but there's a gap between three and four where a lot of the young characters age and they become different versions of themselves so there's some time there that, uh, that i've allotted myself to do other projects if i need to and then there's one last ride with uh, Axe Wilder in the fifth volume. And then there's a secret that I've hidden in one, two, three, four, and five that might be a, a little bit of a prose short or something. It's kind of a fairy tale that kind of wraps the bow around the whole thing. So in my head, it's at least five, for sure three. And uh, maybe if it's super successful and fans would want something artistic and you know a little artsy fartsy than uh, a sixth little prose uh thing to to wrap a bow around it all nice nice well you know and it's it's interesting it, it the the scale of that would seem like it might be off-putting to some um creators or to some fans but not really not in the the place where you're at because uh i mean if if there's anything we know about fantasy and comics fans is that they love immersive all-encompassing worlds they love to go to a place that um, where it feels complete and, and like, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that Lord of the Rings and, you know, um, you know, really almost any multi-film franchise works so well because, uh, fans can't get enough once they, once they want to be there, they, they, they want to be there a lot. Yeah. And I was concerned about that too, because everyone says when you start writing or, or in one of these projects, don't, don't make it so big. But I just knew this story. I knew what the story was when I developed it. And I also knew that, um, so for me, there's guys in the, the publishing industry, the comic book industry, like Art Adams, who just does covers now, but he's fantastic. He's a master at sequentials. And I always wondered like, what if he stopped doing you know, 20 or 30 covers a year and just did a sequentials, he would make evergreens every year. And I thought, well, if I was doing this on my own, and I want Art Adams to do it. I'm not Art Adams level, of course, but I aspire to be that good, you know, one day. I'll say, why don't I start taking the steps that I want other people to do instead of critiquing the industry, take Axe Wilder and do all the things that I, that I think are with a little bit of forethought with as far as the future of publishing with individuals really having a ton of power instead of selling their creations and asking permission, why not? create it and see if there's a market for it outside of the regular system, but then also make deals with publishers, which I'm currently doing with Axwilder to potentially get, you know, worldwide distribution and translations for it to like, why not use both arms? Why not use both things? And with Axwilder in many facets, not just with the writing and drawing, I want to do it my way and little things here and there in the industry that I would be quick to critique before. I'm just going to try to take every step I can uh, and do what I think is right with the project and then hope the fans show up. And so I'm really grateful to the fans who have showed up. And like I said, we're at 150 K in sales and we're looking to push it to 200 before it ends. So, um, that's a real blessing. So that's amazing. You know, um, it, that, when you're explaining your, your sort of, uh, approach now, it, it reminds me of, you know, interviewing many musicians over the years, like when you can, there's a, a moment where 
the really serious guys, you, uh, they seem to kind of uh, calibrate their their approach because of the, because of the very thing you're talking about, you know, like what you can do and what you, is not necessarily what you should do, you know. Um, and then sometimes the the system seems to push people towards certain things. Yeah, um, and I, I think after like I got I you know my date of being published at Marvel was 14 years ago, and I think I got hired in my early 20s there. And I, you know, banged around the industry doing little gigs and I got really successful with Manhattan projects with Jonathan Hickman. And that was really cool. But you start meeting editors, you start knowing the quality decisions that people are making and you start realizing the short sighted things like, oh, we need to do variants and we need to cut this story up into individual issues. And we need to, it's, it feels short sighted. And I didn't want to make those kind of missteps with my book. I wanted to like have it be the way I wanted and and use what I've learned about the industry to my advantage and, and, and really bet, bet on myself instead of asking for permission to create, um, just make these big steps. And if I do fall, ask for forgiveness or, you know, uh, in, in, in that term. So I'm, I'm kind of like using Axwilder in a meta way too, because he's this like super alpha guy and I'm this artist guy, right? But what would he ask for in a contract negotiation? What would he want? And I'm kind of using him as my lead uh, when I'm going into these contract negotiations and whatnot. So it's, it's a real weird meta, you know, uh, art mimicking reality kind of thing with the story and stuff. So don't take an ax to the meeting. <laughs> I don't take <laughs> an ax to the meeting. I mean, I think it might send the wrong message. I think, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, do you find because of the relationship that you have, so to speak, the relationship with the character already, um, that, that reminds me of uh, Mike Mignola telling me once that, uh, you know, when they were filming the, um, I think it was the second Hellboy, but it might have been the first, but he found himself on the set talking to to Ron Perlman in costume and and kind of talking about his, some of some personal issues that he was having and, and you know, and he was getting some advice from his own character. And he, he, talk, he said like how surreal it was, but that in some ways he had been talking to the character before that. Um, that's the, I guess I have really two questions. One, do you, how how much do you rely on you know this the persona of this uh, character as a friend, and then second, uh, how important is it to you that someday maybe to to sit down and meet a screen version of them? Is that is that the payoff or is this stand on its own? Speaking of that concept of um, I don't know if you could, like Alan Moore is into Hermetics and Grant Morrison and how and I'm really into that. I, I like that stuff quite a bit. I think like. Uh, I think that is the way creation works. I think we're, we have 50, we have the material world and then we have like idealism, the perfect forms, the imagination scape. And if you've ever read Stephen King's on writing, he talks about excavating out the story and you're using your craft to get it out like a, like a archeologist, you know, and your tools are, uh, you know, your, your craft is your tools to get it out. But essentially it was an idea in the blackness of my head that I'm now forming into a book. And it, it's gotta be super meta to have it formulate into a man standing across from you as you're talking for a mic. So, and it is weird, like uh, the room that we're sitting in now, the chairs that we're sitting in, it started out as an idea. It started out as uh, this loose design and there's an aesthetic and a beauty to all things. And we're judging these things, good and bad. And it's forming um, our material world is so much of it is constructed from our imagination state. And, as a creative living alone in your thoughts, you start thinking about all these, you know, kind of hermetic and um, esoteric ideas. But I do see so many reflections of that because I think, and Mobius has this great line, he says, um, an artist encodes reality, right? So the way I always took that is, you know, we look at things artistically and delineate it down into, you know, these two dimensional forms. It's almost that your eyes a projector almost, it's almost the inverse, it's something Jodorowsky talked about where, it's kind of like you start seeing like things around you that mimic uh, some concepts because we're essentially, I think a big part of what we do is, or in general, how our minds develop is we live in language, you know, like I'm drawing body language, I'm speaking, it's forming my thoughts and it's forming the world around us. And it's interesting when you start seeing the little coincidence, that's the, the coincidences that Alan Moore brings up and you, you kind of shuffle it away. That was kind of weird. That was kind of weird. But you'll notice how your mind focuses on it. And maybe it's only because materialistically your mind's focused on it. So you're picking up on those things. But but maybe there's a little bit of magic to it too. And I, I like to think we live in a world that's a little magical, you know? 
Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And yeah, is it uh, is it synchronicity or is it yeah, coincidence yeah. or is it is it our our need to arrange and organize things so that yeah. we're looking for these threads that that stand out to us? Um, and at some point, does it matter? It, 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 if, well, that's it, what, that's it, where you get all that magic anyway. Yeah, yeah. So when when you you can go down that rabbit hole and you come back to you're just the guy in the room, you know, drawing again, and you're like, why did I waste all that time thinking about this? But I do think there's a it's such a wonderful lens creatively to start looking at the world in that way. And and maybe you're only warping your own, since we all have individual perspectives and focal points into the world, and those are all so unique to us. Maybe it's us calibrating that that lens is with our minds. Maybe that's all it is and just the one focal point. But, you know, you can get to the point where you can feel like a magician. You know, you can really feel like you're doing magical things uh, when you start seeing things on the page that you had as a brief concept. And then who's putting those thoughts into our heads, you know? Like, right. it, did I need that hero? And that's why he showed up. And and now, like, as a, as a new dad, too, you know, I have the stress of being a, a regular dad. I got to provide for the family. And now here, Axwell or John shows up and he's, you know, been financially rewarding and it's going to pay off in a big way for me and my family. Well, now I've this, I've manifested a provider for me, you know, and that's kind of cool, too, you know, like this leader, this father figure for me. And it, 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 when that came to me and I was aware of some of those mechanisms working, I was like, this is bigger than me asking some editor who i you know who's on a tight budget who doesn't know the influences that i have or the meaning from the characters that i want i was like i'm making this thing and i you know you know i said you know prayed to the hermetic gods and all the you know all the different you know all the different gods and the creative gods and said guys i'm going to make this thing and i'm going to make it as honestly as i can but also as well as i can because i know craft is so important so obviously i had to get into reading books on writing my wife has got a great agent she's a my wife's a writer and uh, I'm friends with Jonathan Hickman. So I was going to utilize everything the world had put around me to make the story as, as over the top and fun as possible, but also plot wise, you know, really make it work, not just draw panel to panel to panel and let the story dictate sequentially, but also stop and look at the plot points and the turns and the twist and see this as a whole organism that I needed to carry through to the end, you know, so that was an important part of the writing of the story. Yeah, and then there's real value there that even if for some reason it, it it didn't you know ring all the bells that you wanted it to with the audience or or uh, it sounds like it's going gangbusters, but uh, just the the value of having in your own life, like you know even if it if it doesn't spring forth, it would still have value uh, just because of all the things you've talked about. Yeah, there's just, there's such important like the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of our time is the creating it, and it's not the day you dream about winning an Eisner Award or the day it comes out on publication. What your day is, what your life is, is, and me and my wife talk about this, is like we get to live in a, in a reality that we built where we get to create story and play the story all the time. And, and that's what we wanted to do since we were kids. And now, even if times get tough or things get tight, we're, we're, we're sacrificing, let's say, taking a great teaching gig or something where you're getting a great salary for living the creative life that that we chose to set on so now it's all about you know, hopefully making it financially rewarding and it, it, it has been and then for the last 10 years i've been able to provide for myself but you know being a new dad now it's like do i can, can i provide for two little ones now too and that added that adds an extra dimension and you start second guessing some of that younger wild bet on yourself stuff you're like wait now i'm betting with two other people's futures as well you know so right well and it's 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 tough choices you know you mentioned mobius um I had a chance to spend some time with him, um, you know, uh, and I remember, you know, one of the, my main takeaways was that he was in a really tough spot because he felt like he was running out of time and that uh, his eyesight was really uh, on the decline and it was really affecting his art. And he had to make a fundamental choice almost every day, essentially. Am I gonna spend today creating new stories about characters that I dream of and all the things that you're talking about? Or do I just go for the profit and the commissions and do work that will only potentially be seen by a handful of people, possibly, but is more lucrative? And uh, and it was really it was really wearing on him when I when I spoke to him. Um, just the the sort of the real politic of it, or the, the 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 hard edge of you know where art and commerce kind of uh, meet or don't meet. Yeah, first of all, that's amazing that you got to spend any time with Mobius. That's super oh. incredible, man. That's awesome. What a what a treat that must have been. Uh, I look at him like um, he is, he's so big. It's like people have trees, like there's this tree or that tree, 
but Mobius has influenced so many people. He's like the air between the trees. You know, there's guys that are like, uh, I always say that Mobius was like a prophet with a pencil. It was like flowing through him, you know, and he's as close as a comic book artist has ever been to that. And uh, to see his, like people have like, let's say he doesn't have like that big American character like Kirby has, but he created so much of the language of what science fiction is for all of our imaginations. He has an, he had imagination so vast that he could hold our imaginations within his and that's an incredible thing you know and when you pick up his books you're just sunk in you're like where did this come from who who was this guy and it's a, a real wonder whenever a reader comes across his work and then it's it is like uh, you know Jodorowsky talks about he wanted that tune movie to be like an LSD mind expanding thing and Mobius he'll expand your mind you know just by reading his work and that's an incredible what a gift of imagination and a man that was. So it's awesome that you got to meet him. I never got to, obviously I never got to meet him. So yeah, he's a lovely, lovely man too. Like just a, a, just a very kind and thoughtful, very um, just engaging and inspiring. Um, and, and I agree with you hundred percent. I, when I wrote about him, I said that uh, Mobius knows colors that the rest of us forgot. Yeah. Um, you know, and he, in um, I, I, I've said a couple of times too that I think his name has become invested with magic in much, you know, to me, it's like a Fellini or, or Hendrix or Castaneda, or there's all these names that are sort of supercharged um, because of the lives that are attached to them. And, um, and, you know, Mobius is like, is in that category. Uh, I think Maya's heard me say this before, but my, one of my great regrets is that um, I, I interviewed him in Burbank and well, that's not the regret, but uh, uh we talked, he and his wife and I, um, for a couple hours, and then um, he did a drawing for me, which was very sweet, but very kind, thoughtful. And on the back, he put his address in Paris. Oh, wow. It's like, you know, we really want you to come see us, you know, come visit. And, and we talked about Paris and what I would do and stuff. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't make it before he left, before he yeah. left all of us. So, and that's, but that's one of those things that, you know, it's I wish I could have made it but uh it's uh, just to spend time with him uh was extraordinary and I brought him I brought a comic book the first heavy metal I had ever bought when I was a kid I still had it and I brought it and uh, showed it to him like, oh and he told me his memories of it and, and he's just great stories too you know he he uh the first movie he remembered seeing I think is fascinating it was uh uh you really appreciate this it's the uh, it's Munchausen but the the European version, um, and he saw it in occupied Paris, you know, when he was a little kid. So he he said, seeing all the Nazis in the movie theater with their blue uniforms, it felt like he was underwater. Wow! Um, and just the idea that you know of him discovering film in that setting with that movie and in that moment uh, is is just sort of fascinating. And uh, you know, he moved uh, his his mom moved to Mexico. Uh, and he went with her and, and that's where, um, while smoking weed, I think, and, 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 uh, and partaking of some other things, probably, uh, he, he found those landscapes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like in, in, uh, that we see in all his work and it's just sort of fascinating kind of pulling apart, uh, the places that he's been and the places that he, he took us, you know, so. One, one little aside, like I, I love teaching young artists and, uh, I read somewhere with him where when he realized when he got a positive affirmation from a, from an adult when they saw he could draw well it like ignited him like when he was when he was very young so one one advice i always give to people is if you just take interest you have a teaching background if you just take interest in a kid you don't really have to do much more they like like so so somebody ignited that imagination you know which is incredible who was the who was the person that went gaga over his first drawing that sent him down the path to be like oh, i'm i'm gonna go and just change what you understand of science fiction and, and imagination like he's incredible you know he's really is incredible absolutely absolutely um you know and uh uh would you when you look at uh you know the project now uh and, and you have all that uh ahead of you you know who are some of the other people that you think about uh their path and, and and use it as like a north star for you like do you do you have you looked at people that um have sort of uh done similar work or do you find inspiration in people even if their their accomplishment is completely uh separate and different 
Um, a, a big one for me is uh, what you mentioned, Magnola. He kind of put Hellboy in front of him in a way. He was already a star, but Hellboy, by, by branding himself and sticking with that character, instead of doing more Spider-Man stuff or being the 5,000 person that kept working on Batman, he's projecting something out there and, and forming it in, in our imaginations and, and making the thing like materially for us to read. And I think putting the character out in front of you like that was big. Uh, someone I'm uh, friend, friendly with and who called me from France is Jeff Darrow, who was really close with Mobius as well. And he talked about this specifically with Shaolin Cowboy. Um, mm -hmm. And he gets offers all the time. He says, but you know, fans will come up and be like, why don't you work on this or X, Y, and Z? It's not like he doesn't have those opportunities, but he's doing the thing he wants to do. And he's investing his creative energy in, in making that thing. And he's plowing forward, working on it for a couple of years. And then, uh, you know, a four-issue miniseries comes out or his new one is uh, Cruel to Be Kin that just came out this month and which everyone should check out. And he, you know, he was kind enough to send me that stuff early, but he talked about um, what I was going to do with Axe Wilder John. And I, I said, you know, he was a model for me. And he said, that's exactly, that's where you need to be creatively. You need to, you need to carve your own path and you need to, and, and thinking that way is right. He was making me feel good about my crazy decision to start with five <laughs> volumes. He's because he's being really kind, but he is a really kind guy. But, uh, but those two guys are specifically uh, for Hellboy and Shaolin Cowboy. It's almost like the creator steps back and projects this cool character and makes it in like a, it's like, I want Axel or John to lead the way for me in that same way, you know, and, and really, you know, the little contract negotiations and stuff. When I deal with it now, I think what's the, I don't think about myself. I think what's the best to brand this guy to make him cool. And uh, not like in a commercial way, but in like a, a little opportunities or things I'd like to see. Like I, I like little action figures. So will I take a loss, a loss on a deal to make sure I can have this action figure because it's what I would want for my property. Or if it's a great deal, then obviously you make that happen. But there's things that I'm trying to build. I'm almost building this thing for me. And like, and I'm, I wrote the story for me. I'm not writing it for anyone else. And if there's an audience for that, then it's real. It's a true creative freedom. And, and that's where I really want to get with the property and with the, with the next probably decade of my career while I try to develop this, this thing. Yeah. And then did you, um, you know, uh, Mignola, he, I think Hellboy, if I remember right, started as a, a sketch that he did at a show. And he says he forgot, the, he had a better name for the character and he forgot it, never remembered it again, which I think is hysterical. Um, but, uh, you know, he, the visual that day that he drew was fairly close to what Hellboy would become. I mean, it changed in some ways, but, um, you know, was your axe wielder, did, it was, did he present himself quickly as far, so far as the visual? Or did you find that you had to sort of evolve to get to where he is? It was, it was pretty quick. It was pretty quick. And there's a turn in the book that really balances his design. There's a twist in the middle of axe wielder where you get to see him in a different light. Uh, something I was doing, because I'm a pretty silly guy too, you know, uh, and I had this, uh, the idea, this first time I drew him, he had a face, but now he's got this big scar cut down his face. And the idea behind that was a, a gag, a sight gag for myself where like a, a big mustache to me represents overt machismo. And this comic I knew was going to be this overtly masculine masters of the universe times heavy metal type story. But I, then I thought there's going to be something in the story that takes him down a peg. And so I thought I'm going to break that mustache in half. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to cut his, a, a fourth of his face off. And as a writer, can I shine some different lights? on him to still make you make him lovable even though he's monstrous can i give him some actions where he's so heartwarming or so violent where he looks like a monster and so, so a big uh, one of my favorite movies is unforgiven and in mm -hmm. unforgiven um there's this element that's never really talked about a whole lot but everyone is saying things about you know the schofield kid is putting himself over or english bob is getting a book written about him uh, you know, uh, little Bill is this, you know, you know, big, broad shouldered on the on the guy, but you learn different things about them that are different. But William Money, when they say things about him, he says, yeah, don't remember. I don't right. know, kid. And then uh, not until and spoiler alert, it's, you know, 40 years old, but 30 years old. But when when Ned dies, he drinks from the his elixir his whiskey, he finally drinks at that tree. And, you know, the the cut up, prostitute comes out and says you know they said you did this this and this and he drinks for the first time and he says oh i've done way worse than that you know but you get to see him you get to see men lit up from other from their stereotypes and other people's perspectives and vocal points but you also get to see him be incredibly sweet like when 
he's talking about his his wife and why he doesn't want to turn a dollar trick with the prostitute at the time right he's like no and she's like i respect you for that you see him in these because we are so multi-dimensional and stereotypes are kind of they're terrible but they're beautiful too because they, like you said how our mind organizes things it's how we have to compute the, the massive information in the world to begin with so i really like the idea of shining different lights on john and a big part of that was making him grotesque but then how can you see him as a human being and not a monster even though i'm going to show him do the most monstrous things can i write that so these were little writing challenges it's just how i perceive the world and how i think we take in the information in the world but can i use this character to play with that little storytelling element was a was a big part of his design so he was pretty much what he was right off the bat and then um then i took his face off just to give myself a writing challenge nice well and you know um it is it's interesting too and i think sometimes uh we don't give audiences enough credit for i think sometimes they're uh uh you know uh entertainment and art gets distilled a little bit um sometimes uh, because people think that the audience will be lost or, or won't pick up on certain things and and i always respect people that really trust their their audience to be you know um smart i always think that like you know you you should create for an audience that uh, you uh, admire. Um, but uh, it, it, when you were saying all that, it struck me about like characters like The Thing in the Fantastic Four, how even as a kid, how we all sort of quickly picked up that he's big and he's grotesque and he's super strong and super scary, but he's not scary and he's funny and he's nice and he's sad and like, and like you would pick it up so quickly, even if it all wasn't there. Like there, there, there's something about um, the way that we, you know, um, we perceive characters and 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 using stereotypes, like you say, and archetypes, uh, and and how our antenna is pretty good for picking up what the what the message is if if the creator has the faith in that. Yeah, and I, I think working with Jonathan Hickman taught me that, like uh, the Grant Morrison and John, they don't really talk down to the readers ever. And there's a part of you as a new writer where you want to get exposition and over explain or, or say these things and it. It's a dubbing down and, and when I read that stuff I actually don't enjoy it, I, I like when the the settings. When a, like a very simple thing if a character's walking through a room he's been in for 30 years in a castle he's not going to start explaining something to the guy that's been his co partner forever because the reader needs to hear it. But you know, if something, you know, a mop spills over and it leads to a funny joke that might squeeze some exposition and you can soften that kind of stuff. But there is an overt need when you're first scripting where you're like, want that information down. But how do you distill that to fill in a lived in world? And how do you shine lights on it to get the information in the reader's head? I think as an illustrator, before I started writing, I was only concerned about the panel to panel transitions. This guy walks here. It's very clear. This guy does this. He's sad. Now I'm more concerned about the language happening from the page to the reader's mind, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a real that gap there is not something I ever examined beyond the visual being clear. Now it's like, how's the story elements, the information that I'm trying to trickle into your head to build that world out. And this that's like a really new lens. And it is very it's very tempting to over to dub things down because you want that information. And, and then a big part of my writing process is. I'll write it out and then I'm scraping so much and, and refining different lights to get to, to shine on scenes to where it doesn't feel so contrived, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, so it can feel organic and authentic. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the toughest thing, right? I guess I, I mean, that's what they say is that uh, talent is the ability to do something and make it look easy. Uh, yeah. But, uh, um, you know what about like irony and uh and also like sort of unreliable narrators or or um you know anytime that the story is really trying to show one thing but give us a different you know uh takeaway i i'm sort of fascinated by that and that seems like that would be the high wire act where it really requires faith as a creator to to even go in that direction uh, actually i did that in axwell or the opening scene is a, like a 12 year old girl and she says uh I, she says right off the bat i used to have a problem with lying uh not big ones but sometimes big ones and my father said that if i was going to keep making up stories which is how a father would word to a lying child you're going to keep making up stories it's best to write them down and then it kind of flows into the story and now i'm like now i've given myself the most trite 
concept. You know, if someone says they used to have a problem with lying, well, if they call themselves liars, you don't know if they're still lying about it. And there's this like dance that you have to do to pull it off, you know? And, yeah. uh, and, and I, I love that stuff. Me and my wife talk about when, and I don't know if I'm pulling it off, but when, when you can take a cliche or you take a trope and you can pull it off at a high level, even though it's on paper, you can write it down and you're like, what, they did this, this, but they're, yeah. but, but he can still pull it off. She, there's a, she, my wife writes, writes mysteries and her kind of, uh, my, my guy's like Frank quietly in illustration. I love him. He's like a hero to me, oh. you know? Yeah. Uh, he's amazing and uh he's kind of friend we're kind of friendly now and he's really sweet to me and such a uh, grace to his work oh yeah, he's wonderful I, yeah. I wish i wish i could pull that off but he's he's a really great guy and too but she has this writer tanner french and uh she's she's a fantastic writer and she writes at a you know a, a wonderful level but she she still plays in genre fiction she still plays with all the tropes and, and people ask her why don't you go do your great you know like she's i think she's scottish or I, I think she's irish so why didn't you go do your great i'll say american novel because i don't have a better comparison sure. well why don't you why didn't you go uh do that and she's like uh, because i can do both like why can't why can't what's wrong with playing with both and uh and we we and my wife are always blown away when someone can take the the very basics and still spin them in a fresh way so yeah. uh, i i try to play with that and it's probably playing with fire you know as a new writer but it's it was a fun challenge yeah that's fun um you know, and, and with when you think about uh, the, the portrayal of female characters, because it's such a, a machismo um, approach that you've talked about. Um, but you know, if if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that we all need to really, really listen to our hearts and listen to other people, and 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 kind of take it take it up a notch as far as how we think about things. Uh, how did that, how, how has that affected your creative process? Uh, it's, it's big in Axwell, there's a, there's a, so in the hermetic thing, or like there's up and down, there's this and that, there's black and white, but there's yeah. definitely male and female, you know, there's feminine and masculine. And I don't mean like, you know, genders. I mean, like right. there is a soft side and a hard side. And I knew that Axwell or John was a drum beat. Uh, he's mm. heavy, he's loud, he's breaking stuff, he's smashing things. And then I knew that as an aesthetic visual that I needed to balance that with some femininity. I knew I was gonna take him down a peg and break his mustache in half, but there's story elements in there like the frame narrator is a 12 year old uh, girl uh, who, who's, who you think is creating the story. And, but there's other things I've sprinkled in for the turn that really soften him as a visual that um, you know he's cursed to fall in love with these skulls and he's, he's got his MacGuffin that he's chasing down, but. But, but what that is shown to be and what it is, uh, I hope uh, hopefully there's some balance there uh, because I didn't want to make just a splatter overly male comic book. I wanted, I really wanted the story to represent what I was going through as a new father. And that, you know, uh, and I, again, I, I like just personally, like I'm in arm wrestling clubs and I played football and I'm in fantasy football leagues. I'm more of a guy. Well, sure enough, the universe blessed me with two little girls and a very feminine <laughs> feminine wife so now i'm having to i'm getting taken down a peg you know i'm having to learn how to be a better softer person uh you know and and i'm i knew that the reflection of what was going on in my day-to-day -day was going to reflect whether you want to or not like it, hickman talked about that when he was working on the fantastic four he's uh -huh. like uh i keep writing stuff that has to do with sons and fatherhood and he's like i must be going through some shit because it keeps coming out you know and i didn't think i didn't think about that but the way art mimics uh especially if you're doing it in an earnest way it's what's on it's what, what's what's on my mind so there is some softness to john that i think when i've gotten good reviews so far that they say the story is you know this this and that but it has heart and i think the the feminine side the little bit of softer touches really make it a balanced meal or make it a piece of music because i kind of think about music theory a lot too and this is a little esoteric but if i'm the dad and i'm loud I, i'm the drumbeat in the house i'm the boom 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 if i sit in here and i'm quiet then there it's kind of quiet but when i come out and then my wife is harmonizing things as she's buzzing around and doing her thing and it's it's just as important it might not get the standalone attention that the dad's getting as the loud but that system because that piece of music doesn't play without either of us doing our thing, you know? And uh, it's interesting that systems kind of work that way. And I'm, I'm a big fan of looking into this as, a, as an artist. We have a lot of time while we're drawing our pages where we can play on YouTube and, and hear about all these different, you know, great thinkers. And 
uh, music theory, it, it kind of replicates itself in a lot of things too, so. Yeah, I love how collaboration often kind of uh, leads to that same kind of energy, uh, the balance or the yin and yang of it. Um, I, you know, I think the classic example, like uh, Lennon and McCartney, I mean, they did great things apart, but I mean, when they were together, it was really, really special. And, um, you know, I, I've always thought that uh, the, the most representative example of that would be, uh, you know, Paul comes in and says, I have a song called It's Getting Better. And then John listens and then adds, can't get much worse. Yeah. Uh, and and it, that song is not the same without that, without that that edge that goes against it, you know, that. Yeah, I mean, that's like a perfect, that's a perfect line to make it a balanced system, the yin and the yang. It's got a, a I've been thinking about titles like like the, the company Skybound, like Skybound, it sounds awesome, right? But it's sky, it's like infinite, but also bounded, you know, there's a right. yin and yang. To, if you start looking at the titles of things that are really popular, we love balance, like people love balance. They don't like one note. They like a system that, and you'll see it in so many things. And it's a very much yin and yang expanded in a kaleidoscope, you know, and it, it could be like a, a line like that where that line was not much, but after that, that's a complete system. You know, it's a, it's an inverse thought and it feels right because it, it almost zeroes itself back out. And it's something you can all of a sudden project yourself into because it's a neutral, it's not you complaining or you saying this. Now you can take your experience because it's a, it's got a zero wave and you can apply all of your cool stuff that the time you were happy, the time you were sad, the time it turned on its head. And it's interesting concepts that, that can be balanced. I think they're a window into um, you projecting yourself into it. And this is going back to why Mobius is kind of genius too. That name Mobius and the Mobius strip, the infinity sign, like mm -hmm. it's almost like he's not there, like he's a magician, you know? And then you're just right. opened up into this world. It's almost like the branding of calling yourself Mobius is like the coolest branding it's like meant for him you know uh yeah. and uh i started thinking about things as terms of symbols too like the yin and yang symbol is a pleasing symbol and uh with axwater john there is some visual aesthetics that i'm applying to this heavy that softens him it, it, within the story itself and it's it's a turn but you'll you'll get to see what that is for the readers who check it out but it, it it's, it's so interesting that that works everywhere it works in a sentence it works in language it works in uh, computer systems it's so it's it works in music obviously and uh it, it's like it makes me want to study so many things but also you you go down these rabbit holes and you realize you're a peon when it comes to the real thinkers that, that think about this stuff you know yeah well there's that that classic thing is uh i, I you know i wanted to be an artist when i was a kid and uh uh there would always be always be these points where i would it would tilt from inspiration to discouragement because I, I would see something and wow, oh, this is great. And then it's like, oh, it's too good. Now I'll never be this good. Like, and it's the, there's that, that uh, funny thing where, uh, uh, you know, how we receive something and, 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 and how it propels us or if it, if it makes us kind of become more guarded almost because it's like, it's like, I can't look upon this. It's too good. I'm not worthy. Uh, it's just kind of funny. The, the, uh, the uh the way that we process things yeah like a, like because I, I have a teaching background i mentioned and uh it said like the one thing i stress to everybody is the only guy you can be the only person like i love you know quietly mobius but if you try to start by catching those guys you know you're crushed you know you're like that's impossible but the one thing i've done is really focus on try to beat yourself the day before or last week or if you're if you want to try to break in comics and you haven't drawn in three months which is we've all been there or six months and you're like just try to beat your last drawing. And then eventually you do that enough and you look around and you'll start separating yourself from the pack a little bit, you know? And that that's the only way you can do it in almost anything. But when you start in like uh, an art class or something, there is the two or three guys that are the artists in the class. And I, I actually didn't draw in high school because in middle school, I went to an art class and I thought it was good, but then there was guys that were way better. And I just got lucky uh, in high school I ended up getting enough credits to graduate, but we still had class and I just stopped going to class and they removed me from my regular classes into remedial classes. And in one of those classes, a kid was going to Kubert school and he was drawing uh -huh. and he was drawing out of his head. And I was like, this is magic. But I didn't, I was more intrigued by the fact that he could than compared my, he was too far away from me to catch. But the fact that he could imagine things and get them on the page was like, it was a magic trick. And 
that's what really hooked me and realizing there was a school for illustration and I never went to the school, but I would go visit and do their assignments and stuff for, you know, Moonlight as a Cupid school kid, went to live in New Jersey, uh, Dover, New Jersey for a little while. But that wow. kind of like started the journey for me about 17 or 18 and then get to get into the Mobius tree. But I think he's the heir, but we'll call it a tree. Uh, Frank Quietly was working on the authority and I hadn't really been reading comic books. And so the authority is this very over the top, they're killing each other, Midnighter and Apollo are giving gay Superman and Batman analogs. And I'm like, what, what is this? This is incredible, you know? And it, not knowing that it, you know, spawned off Watchmen and, you know, so many other things that turned. But but for me, the illustrations were fantastic. And I was, I was consuming the medium sequentially for the first time, you know? And then instantly that just sent me off to find Jeff Darrow and, obviously you find the Mobius and you're just blown away and everybody else, you know, and then you can love uh, the guy I really love. And this gets into that Scott McCloud conversation about drawing as an icon or drawing something super realistic and in, under, in understanding comics, he's a, he's kind of a symbol. He's meaning like um, he's a very pared down illustration of himself and he starts drawing himself realistically in, in one sequence. And you realize that you you were paying attention to the message when he was a symbol, but you start looking at the messenger when he is more realistic. And in that sense, it's like the Walmart happy face. If it's my face, instead of that happy face, that happy face is happy to everyone on the planet. If it's my face, I'm like your fat uncle or something smiling at you and what's going on behind my eyes. And so my actually favorite stories to read, there's, a, there's this artist named Jason. I think he's Norwegian and he does like the cat face symbol people. And he has a, he has a book called I Killed Adolf Hitler. But yeah. when you are watching his deadpan characters, there's so much, because they're vessels and they're symbols, that you're projecting so much of you into when they're deadpan reacting. And those stories are so fun. But aesthetically, I love the guys that are the messenger. You know, I love the guys that are doing the detail. But I, I'm very aware that there's a whole other side of independent cartoonists, especially because they, a lot of those guys don't get the big two work, uh, but th their storytelling uh, mechanisms and what they're using is at a, uh, I think almost at a better level to deliver sequential stories sometimes. So once I fell into the world of like figuring out what, how visually symbols were working and stuff, I was, I was off to the races as far as my career went, so. That's pretty great. Um, that, that reminds me of kind of like Frank Miller. I mean, his, the, you know, here's a guy that came in, he was kind of, he loved Neil Adams and was kind of trying to draw in that style and, and was limited and and then pared it down and got more and more elemental uh, using light and, and darkness. And, and you know, those great covers that he did for Daredevil, you know, I, I grew up on those and, and that was like my favorite thing. And I, I, I asked him about, you know, the composition of them because they seemed so startling compared to other comics of the day. And essentially he basically said, you know, I, I was doing postage stamps. Like, you know, you can look at a postage stamp, it's so small, you, you need to be able to, to tell what it is. Uh, and I was doing comic book covers that if you, if I did as a thumbnail, you would still know what it was. And if I couldn't do it that elemental, that basic, um, then I would, I knew it was, I had to pare it down and get it to something else. And I just sort of fascinated by that, the, the, the language of, uh, what's there and what's not there and that what's not there is is just as important or in some ways uh, even more important than what what is there yeah um, absolutely you know, versus uh, that it, poster you know the poster style which you know because uh, like Eisner would tell a story that would flow you know and the story dro drove the art choices but then you know in the 90s for instance comics moved toward more of like everybody wanted every page almost like a poster um, yeah which would be kind of a the fetishizing of it a little bit. Um, I think it's, I think it's, and I think it's interesting, like the Mobius stuff, especially like you talk about what's not there. He's got all this concentrated detail. And when Jero, like Darrow will fill it up to the max yeah. where it almost loses its message. It's, it's, it's pure chaos. You know, I love Jeff, but it is, he knows that it's, it's madness. But what made um, Mobius kind of sophisticated is he, he paid attention to that outside white shape around all of that. And it made you appreciate it. You know, it, make, it makes you like, uh, there's something about that balance that's so important in, in so many things. It's really in everything in life and in every little element, there's something aesthetically pleasing about it. Um, and Moby, like I, it's something I'm desperately trying to learn because I'm definitely an overdrawer. You know, I, I want to prove I can do it, but there's a point where you know how to do it, feel comfortable with yourself and get, get the clear message on the page. And it's something I've done with Axe Water 
dropping out backgrounds instead of like putting every little tick mark that doesn't really convey the language. And since I'm working with words now and just pictures, I know that, you know, there's going to be some really soft dialogue there to balance something really graphic, or there's a, you can play with the, the softness of a sentence, uh, the sweetness of a sentence with the violence too, or there's other, you know, you, there's so much, like it's, I say kaleidoscope because it, it was just a linear language, but now it's like this, uh, it's this, it's this illustration and the words and how the sentence is structured. And then the context of the meaning of the whole thing, because on, I might be playing with an element on page five that I'm turning on page 15 that is working in some other balanced way. And it's so interesting that, I, I don't know, for me, it's so interesting that we're, we're, we're trying to make something that's almost it's perfect that the sentence of the, the lyric you had earlier is like it's a wonderful example all encompassing and when I listen to this again I'm going to write that down and go back to it because I always have a hard time explaining this because you can get scatterbrained if I'm talking about language and lines and symbols but uh but that that's such a all-encompassing line there where it's this that and then it's perfect you know yeah, uh, that's yeah a cool it's, thing. Like the, it's like the uh seeing something when you see uh, something without a shadow, it doesn't look right to the eye, and you know it's that that the, the opposite, the shadow of it in a way. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, so I apologize to anybody that's heard this before. But for me, as a writer, like I wrote for like 21 years for the LA Times, and I and during that time, I you know really learned a lot about writing, and 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 there was one story I was working on that was. I had so many ideas for it because uh, I found this perfect person to write about, you know, a former gang member turned police officer. And it was, and I wanted to write a story about how she had done that in her life, but there were so many fascinating things along the way. And I realized it was, uh, I, I kept trying to put them all at the top of the story, but it just, it, it wouldn't hold. It was too much. It was too breathless. And um, it was, it's kind of like an ice cream cone where you keep putting scoops on, you know, you're going to lose them. You know, like I, the cone can only hold so much. Uh, um, and, but it, it really triggered uh, a, a soul searching for me as a writer at that point, because it was my first front page story, uh, but I had some time to work on it a couple weeks. Um, and I was, I had a niece at that point, and I was her godfather. And uh, the storybooks that they make for kids, I looked at them and I realized this is what I need is this, you know, once upon a time is, is like a very simple phrase, but it opens up so much, you know, and it's, um, it's to have the assuredness and the confidence to know what you're writing. Like to me, like if, if I was staring at the screen for all that time, it probably meant I didn't have enough information. I didn't do my reporting enough. I needed to have something else, you know? Um, but when I was able to finally distill it down to a, a very simple, almost fairy tale like you know, set up, you know, uh, Mona Ruiz carries the weight of two badges, period. One is the Silver Shield of St. Anne Police Department. The other is the gang tattoo that coils down the wrist of her shooting hand. One marks her as a protector on the streets. The other is a predator. She walks in both worlds. She's welcome in neither. This is her story. You like it? Fantastic, you know? I got, goose, I, I got goosebumps from that, dude. It's fantastic. Because you, you are, you're like bouncing back and forth and you're illustrating it completely. And her, whatever she is, is held in between those two worlds. And whatever your story's about is going to be delivered. And you just painted her in two lights back and forth. And you created the perfect vessel for your, your, your piece to run off of, you know? And you, I can tell, obviously, you, re, you probably worked very hard on those lines because they're fantastic, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I have not read that, that article. And I'm going to look it up when we're done to, to read that. Oh. That sounds great, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, it, it was like a real turning point for me and people noticed too you know people came and said you know something's different about the way you're writing i'm like you know i, I i'm not trying to impress people anymore i'm i'm realizing that the most uh, instead of trying to add pyrotechnics i'm just trying to get it distilled i'm not trying to make it fancier i'm trying to make it um more truthful and and it's hard though it's really hard because it takes the reason i remember that so well is because i i, I worked on it for so long you know chiseling it you know Pairing it down to like, like my wife writes, you know, and uh, she, she's jealous because I can draw, you know, I can draw all these things, but she has to illustrate them with words, but you taking like the illustrating in words, the tattoo and the badge, you know, and, and yin and yanging that it's such a perfect, it's such a perfect, there's some really wonderful lines in there, you know. Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks very much. Yeah. And then I, 
really tried to use like words like coils is such a yeah. word you know like that's a great that's great um that's it's uh it's uh it, it's really just a, a, a switch that goes off in your head in a way um you know a lot you mentioned music and music theory my favorite writer like when i was a teenager was springsteen uh, because i just loved the simplicity of his lyrics and and it's really kind of i've gone back to it again and again and um just the way that he phrases things really really appeals to me is there when you look at the work that you're doing now and the work that you have ahead of you uh is there a soundtrack that you have in your head or is there is there music that helps you find any element of what you're doing um i think there's three artists that come to mind like from my times illustrating well for for axel or john there's a composer basil polydorus he, he did robocop and conan but he, he did the soundtrack to a, a western in the early 90s with tom Selleck called um quiggly down under sure, and, I remember and, that. and there's a tr there's a there's a, a track on there called the attack and whenever i'm designing a fight scene i'm listening to the attack and it's it's and i, and I can write to that stuff but i can't write the lyrics but there's a, a yin and yang my two favorite song uh, singer songwriters i love elliot smith but he's very oh. he's very esoteric and it's sometimes referencing drugs or pain and he's illustrating it in a more obtuse way. But then my, my father growing up, he's a blue collar construction worker and he loves Jim Croce and Jim oh. Croce is, and Jim Croce is like this man in a, there's no other way to illustrate what he's saying. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a man walks into a bar and he gets a chip on his shoulder. There's no other way, but it's a very meat and potatoes linear kind of uh, a comic booky type of language. And those are my two favorite that I've listened to the most over the years. And uh, I think writing wise, I'm probably more meat and potatoes, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm not uh, like, I, I have an editor that I work with, Chris Stevens, and he's won some Eisners. And I always say he's doing like, uh, like he has a book that he wanted to call Dream Compass. But I feel like there's, it almost doesn't hold, you know, and it, it's going to be a great book. It's a fantastic book, but I, I want to call it like, it's, it's all about all of his projects that he's worked on over the years that have fallen apart but they got started like he's got 14 pages of a story that starts from beautiful colors to fades fades out to the thumbnails to the emails that never were responded to and it's by art adams right and he gets to tell yeah. that story and he's worked with you know james jean and all these guys and uh, his journey so I, my pitch to him is call it the pretender because he's got this complex where he hasn't done anything yet and so you could be called a pretender but this is like a very trite meat and potatoes thing compared to his dream compass but also he's pretending all the time he's he's when this book comes out and people realize how good he is they're gonna he's like the imagination man he's the pretender and so like there's a duality there's a duality there that i like but it's also very blunt it's very him just putting him as the lead and and for we've been arguing back and forth for months and i finally won him over that dream compass is so whenever i get the whimsical elliot smith stuff that's like dream compass stuff to me i really want that meat and potatoes jim Kershey. But, but I, yeah, but I actually love, I love the stuff that your mind is trying to figure out the lyrics, you know, like there's so many great lines in Elliot Smith that are just beautiful, you know, and they're using two or three different, you know, you're calling a, a face a broken sink or something. And it's like, what is, what does that mean? You know, and, but you know what it means, you know, and it's, it's, it's playing with a different part of activating a different part of your imagination where um, Jim is just giving it to you and just telling you a, a beginning, middle end kind of thing. So. Yeah, those are my favorites. Craziest thing is that not 15 minutes before we started this, I was listening. I was watching a Jim Croce video. I was watching Operator. So, so uh, Operator. Yeah. So I, I sing Operator to my daughters every night. Uh, they know the words. They're two and three. And this is the hermetic wink thing. You might have said that. You might have, like. What are the odds? It's somebody who who died 40 years ago you're listening to something on operator operator i've, I've sang that song so many times like i i think i i think i think to myself and i know it's probably true i've sung that song to my girls and listened to it through my dad growing up i've had to have sung it more than times jim has at this point yeah i'll bet i'll bet it's such a but such the a fact great... that it was on that's that and we're talking about her we're talking about yeah it's fantastic that the line that i love is I'm oh, living I in LA with my best old ex-friend, Ray. Oh, yeah. Oh, I knew you were going to yeah, say that. Yeah, dude, 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 that explodes. Like, she's living in LA with a guy A guy she said she knew well and sometimes hated. Isn't, yeah. isn't, that, isn't that the way that goes? It's, it's literally what it's meant to be said after those lines. But how much illustration of story is done 
in two sentences. It's such a genius line, you know, and everything else is like, you can see the man standing and, you know, reading off, you know, at, at a phone booth, I would imagine. And he's talking he, to the operator. Done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's and he, like the best. Like he's such so a good. Stack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, uh, he's, he's, he's consoling himself when he delivers that line. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's fantastic. But, but, but this, is the, this is the universe winking. The odds that you got the biggest gym fan of all time and you were listening to the song I've sung the most before we took the call and we're talking about hermetics and the universe giving you the winks. It's just coincidence. But after a while, I don't know what's going on, but it's cool. You know, it's cool. Yeah. And maybe coincidence doesn't mean what we think it means because maybe it's just yeah. magical enough as it is. You know, the, 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 to me, the, the most amazing line in that song, and it's the one that always gets me, is um, uh, there's something in my eyes. It happens every time. When I think about the love I thought would save me. Yeah. That is the one that, that's like right up there. You know, I think Leonard Cohen um, maybe wrote the saddest lyric ever, which was uh, like a beast with its horn or a baby stillborn. I have torn everyone who reached out to me. Wow. Yeah. That's devastatingly sad. Yeah. You know, um, or the one where he says, you know, with the, the saddest, saddest sentence ever written was um, crib for sale, never used. You know, wow. it's like, oh, uh, and but I mean to me that coaching line is is right up there because of the 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 recognition that uh, you know what he what got away or what he thinks got away it's just like sort of it's like hauntingly powerful thought you know yeah it's fantastic I, I, you know not many I don't get to speak to many people that know his music much less know the lyrics that intimately so this is uh, this is the best part of the interview so far <laughs> yeah that's he's a fascinating guy all the, and you know how many people it's so amazingly sad how many musicians we lost in in plane and helicopter crashes i mean you like jim croce and john denver and uh van zant and big bopper and richie valens and Aaliyah and like you know, it just goes on and on the list. It's I, I I used to cover rock and roll, and I one time I was on a small plane. I was I was accepting a, a ride. Sammy Hagar offered me a ride to Chicago because uh, I needed to get there right away for a story. I said sure, and I'm, we're sitting on the tarmac. It's his band, and they all hold hands. It starts to rain outside. We're in the Midwest, and on they all hold hands and start a prayer. And I'm like, get me off this plane right now. I didn't know you guys were doing prayer. I'm out of here. Get me off this plane. Um, just because of the the odds of being on a plane with a musician in the Midwest on a bad rainy night, you don't yeah. want to you don't want to add to it. Um, but luckily, I survived. Man, I didn't know your background was so rich. You know, <laughs> like uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about my silly comic oh. book. You know, oh, uh, are you kidding? No, it's it's, <laughs> it's great to talk to you, and, and uh, you, all those people that I talked to are just like you. I mean, they 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 the conversations went just like this and, and this one's just as good as those were uh but uh it's sort of fascinating the way things uh you know just sort of play out but that's the way it goes that's, that's, the way that's it goes. as jim croce says um well fantastic well we've uh we've taken so much of your time i could talk to you all day long uh and i think we could make this a weekly show <laughs> but uh i think that uh we should probably say goodbye but i wanted to uh just wish you the best of luck with this project. I think it looks fantastic. And uh, it sounds like uh, it's it's a work of art in your life as well as it is. Um, it's, it represents something that you living your life artfully in a way. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, thank you. And I, I wanna say thank you for your time. And honestly, this has been uh, a real treat. So getting to know you a little bit, Jeff, and uh, getting to talk. Uh, especially, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas and, you know, 30 minutes above San Antonio. I don't have a lot of uh, artistic friends, much less uh, artistic friends that have lived uh, a quarter of the life you have. So getting to chat with you a little bit uh, means a lot. And uh, I've, I think I've learned more about you than I was expecting. You know, I was expecting to come here and pitch a comic book, but uh, I got to have a real conversation. So that means a lot. Oh, cheers. Uh, right back at you. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for joining us. And uh... Uh, we will talk to you again. Let's. We'll, why don't we make a uh, uh, a plan to to revisit and come back in and like later in the year and and see how things uh, shook out for you. 
Yeah, that, that'd be excellent. And uh, I would love to read that article. I'll, I'm going to look it up. I, I'm sure I can just find it online still, or is it, is it out there? It should be out there. Yeah, it should be out there. And I turned that one into a book. Um, uh, and this is the 25th anniversary of that book. I'll, I'll, is it, I mean, I'm going to be a lazy bum. Is it on Audible? Is it on Audible? Is it, is it available? Is uh, it, it available? It, it is, it's on Kindle. Kindle, uh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, it's on, it should be on there. I'll, <laughs> I I'll buy I'll, I'll buy I'll buy I'm I'm interested in it and uh you're you're a thoughtful guy and uh from the little bit I've heard a wonderful writer and you got great taste in music so uh I'm uh I'm excited uh really That's nice to meet you man I appreciate very it very nice guys. to meet you too and then we we have to do this again so I can tell you my Elliot Smith story <laughs> oh dude I love Elliot so I would love to hear this and <laughs> yeah. see, this is the thing the only the only thing now is when now see I went in cold so now I'm just going to be intimidated when we talk next time. This oh. uh, uh, the intimidation factor didn't grow until the end when you when you knew everything I liked you at least had an awareness of it and then you have a like you like Mobius well I've met Mobius you know you like oh. uh, you've lived a you lived a real uh, an admirable life you know one one I hope to grow into myself so it's really it's a real pleasure man I really this is one of the best conversations I've had. Uh, regarding art and music and uh, comic books, dude. It's very cool. Same here, Nick. Same here. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you, everybody, for sticking with us on Mindspace. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.